Hello everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. The opening music was the Baby Elephant Walk composed by Henry Mancini and played by the brilliant Barry Griffiths. Thank you once again to our podcast sponsors, TJ Flutes, who have supported the Talking Flutes channel since we started 239 episodes ago. That's five years anyway. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram, TikTok at TJ Flutes, Facebook and YouTube at Trevor James Flutes and on Twitter at Flute. Well, actually, that Twitter one is me, but if you want to follow me, then great, at Flute. A couple of weeks ago, Claire recorded what turned out to be the last ever interview that the inspirational flute player and teacher, Atara Bentovim, did. At the time of recording, she told Claire that she was very poorly, but really wanted to do a podcast where she could speak openly about music and flute playing matters that she was extremely passionate about. To some, her thoughts may have been a little controversial, but to many, and I know many because they've come back to us on this, they were really refreshing to hear. Sadly, Atara passed away only a few days after the podcast went live. I know that the British Flute Society are currently looking at ways to keep Atara's memory and passion for teaching flourishing for future generations, and I wish them all the success in achieving this. If you haven't yet listened to the podcast, then I would really strongly recommend that you listen to episode 235 titled Let's Go Back to Basics with Atara Bentovim. In it, she speaks about how she believes that no flute player should ever be a guru and how, as a woman, she had to literally break down doors to get heard and taken seriously, honest and direct, without any fluff. She was a great loss to the flute-playing world, and our thoughts are very much with her close family and friends. Now, I have a few questions to answer this week, which our lovely listeners have sent in. One especially as a result of the Talking Flutes podcast that Claire and I did last week, titled Honesty in Music. So let me try, let me find this one. Here we go. It's from Catherine Murphy-Lawrence from Vancouver, Canada. What lovely part of the world. Who asks, Hello, Talking Flutes. Loving the podcasts. As a mother whose children have just flown the nest, I'm beginning to get back to flute playing. One question during your podcast with Claire last week, you mentioned facts versus opinion. Can you expand on this, please, as I'm struggling with the whole return to playing the flute thing again? Well, Kate, may I warmly welcome you back to the flute fraternity. We're a lovely family, both online and in person. So it's always nice to have people returning to playing this beautiful instrument after taking many years out. Firstly, if you're having a few issues with sound production and getting your fingers working again after many years away from the instrument, can I point you towards three brilliant books by Claire, my co-host? Flute Reboot and the two Kickstart Flute Books, Album 1 and 2, published by Astute Music. They can be found at astute-music.com. In the two Kickstart Flute Books, Claire has done a wonderful job of guiding the beginner and those returning to flute playing using specially composed music from around the world. Flute Reboot is also available via Astute Music, 
and is a more advanced tutor where Claire has carefully put together practice guides and advice in areas such as tone and finger technique to quickly get you immersed back into the joy of music making. Right, facts versus opinion. I'm going solo this week. This is really unusual for me because normally I have a guest on the other end. Anyway, bear with me. The subject was to do with being honest about how you feel about many aspects of life, but also pertaining in the podcast to musical performances and the arts in general. For example, contemporary art can be an anathema to many and yet an intriguing joy to others. Now, I have a fascination for contemporary art as it demands that I take off my blinkers and look outside my visual norms. I am forced to see what the painter or sculptor has created without bias in an attempt to get the creative spirit to break through. This, for me, is the same from new contemporary music, where understanding the composer's narrative is crucial to me breaking down my auditory bias when I hear anything atonal. I do get that some people really don't understand it and it just doesn't sit well with them. But I do think that we have this inbuilt bias that we do have to consciously take hold of and then almost explode it to be able to welcome in these different sounds and different thought processes. Many years ago, when my children were very young, the twins were probably six or seven at the time, we visited the L.S. Lowry exhibition in Salford, Manchester. Walking around looking at the marvellous and evocative drawings and paintings of life in the industrial districts of northwest England in the mid-20th century, all was going well, bearing in mind young children and art galleries usually aren't put together in the same sentence. Until one moment when my son, in a very booming voice from another room, could be heard to say, Dad, Dad, this is so rubbish. It's meant to be a dog, but it's just a blob with stick legs. And you know what? He was right. Indeed, it was a black blob with sticks purporting to be a dog. At that moment, his opinion was that it was rubbish and he was okay to have that opinion. It wasn't a fact as what he saw as a blob with stick legs, to me, was visually a dog drawing. However, it showed that opinions and facts can often overlap, a bit like a Venn diagram, and can be misconstrued in the depths of our inner insecurities. So he was right, it was a blob on sticks. But to me, I could see a dog. Not a fact, just opinion. In the creative arts in general, whether we like or dislike something is always a personal preference. The causality of such views is based around many things really too complicated for my simple and aging brain to compute. The brilliant flute player and lovely guy Stephen Clark once told me about his definition of granny ears. Yeah, you heard that right, granny ears, where you as a very young and new musician will play a piece in a school concert. Just bear with me for a moment. You can hear the sound of 12 seven-year-old recorder players playing together. And you know what? To your granny, it would be the best, most beautiful thing she had ever, ever heard. Granny is. Sometimes we listen to musicians, and as this is a flute podcast, listening especially to other flute players, and we don't always gel with what we're hearing. Something isn't hitting our sweet spot. We didn't really like an interpretation of a piece. Or there might have been something in particular that wasn't sitting well with us. Now, this isn't a factual response. It's our opinion. Today is Monday. 
that's a fact, or whatever day you're listening to it. <laughs> so this may be a Tuesday or this may be a Wednesday, but today is today, that's a fact. The heart beats blood around your body, that's a fact. But how each of us perceives something within many art forms is based totally around our own preferences, which may often differ from others. Who's right, who's wrong, I'll leave that to you. If I'm at a concert or recital and hear something that sends a negative feeling into my subconscious mind, and that actually happens quite often, I may quickly form an inner judgment as a result of the audible information being received. But it's important to understand that what I am feeling or my thoughts or bias about how a certain piece is being performed or interpreted are the property of me only and cannot be stored in a scientific and peer-reviewed article. In other words, it's my opinion. So what I mean by facts versus opinions in the last podcast was based around feeling free to have thoughts and opinions. But, and this is quite critical, also being careful on proffering them out publicly as a fact. I also enjoy questioning my thoughts and taking a step back to try and understand why I don't gel with a performer, a work of art, a 300-page book. Reflecting on our opinions can be a valuable exercise in expanding our knowledge and enjoyment of visual and auditory art. As J.S. Lowry once said, you don't need brains to be a painter, just feelings. Gosh, that was a long answer. Moving on, an email from George Davidson from Adelaide in Australia asks, tonguing, oh, here we go, tonguing. Hello, talking flutes. I have a question for you. How do you double and triple tongue on the flute? This question has actually arisen on a few of our previous podcasts. Claire has justifiably always been a little reticent to get too deeply involved in how to tongue and to double tongue and triple tongue, as she felt that being too prescriptive in a single pod is is quite misleading because there are many factors involved in tonguing within a piece of music, such as the requirement for the length of each individual note when using a single, double or triple tongue, and also the particular style of music will require different lengths and different emphasis, and each of us have individually used our voices very differently within our own language. Claire, as herself a brilliant flute player and flute professor, is exactly therefore right in her caution to covering this important topic within a podcast. A lot of teachers out there will have their own preferences and their own ways of doing things and their own ways of teaching based around the student in front of them. So covering this in a single podcast may be a little disingenuous to people that don't necessarily speak the English language and use vowels and consonants the same way we do. So that's Claire as a player and teacher. However, me, well, I have no such illustrious performance or teaching background. So I can therefore, with your permission, draw on one of the biggest social media platforms to demonstrate an easy way to practice your double and triple tonguing. For those of you listening to this podcast, shh, please keep this secret to yourself. Double tonguing. We all know what single tonguing is. It's when you go ta 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 or da 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 or even use the ka 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 ka. Double tonguing is employed by a musician where the articulated speed, which is a ta-ta-ta-ta, of the music is faster 
than that which can be managed by single tonguing. So I would imagine it will be and then you need to go faster and that's as fast as my tongue will go. So I need to employ another technique to be able to tongue faster. As it implies, double tonguing is used where there are groups of notes that are in even numbers and triple tonguing is used where the groups of notes are in three. There are various ways to double and triple tongue using tucka, tucka, tucka. We've got various ways of going tucka, 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 tucka. But today, and to make it really, really easy, I'm going to draw inspiration from TikTok. So how does this work? Right. Just by adding an emphasis on the K at the end of each part of that word, Tick-tock. You are double-tonguing by using the t and then the k. Think about it. T-k. T-k. Tick-tock. 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 Saying tick-tock, you are double-tonguing a group of four. Tick-tock. One, two, three, four. Tick-tock. Learning to say tick-tock constantly and getting faster as you go will, believe it or not, assist your double-tonguing practice. When you don't have the flute in front of you, around the supermarket, walking down the street, in the shower, just start singing tick tock 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 There you have it. Magic. Triple tonguing. You can take the word tick tock which you're double tonguing and add an extra t after each k. So tick tock double tonguing. And add a T of that. Tickety tockety. 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 Simple, isn't it? When you get used to ticky tocky and tickety tockety, then change the consonants and say diggy doggy. Diggy doggy. And then diggity doggity. Diggity doggity. Diggity doggity. Diggity doggity. Each of those elongates or shortens the note. Tick tock. Tick tock. Very short. Diggy doggy, diggy doggy, that's lengthen notes. And tickety dockety, diggity dockety, and diggity doggity, diggity doggity. You see, while social media has a lot to answer for, learn to do this quickly. And then TikTok can solve your tonguing problems. Do you know, I think I've got uh, the name of the podcast here How TikTok Helped My Tonguing. Moving on to an extremely brief question from David Ledson in London, who asks, Dear Talking Flutes, what is the best flute? Well, actually, David, this is an extremely simple question for me to answer. If there was a best flute, then wouldn't everybody be playing on it? In short, as I've mentioned previously on this podcast, we are all very different. No two of us are alike in what we feel and hear when we play a flute. Our embouchures are different. How we project the angles of the airstream into our instruments, again, is unique to us. What we feel when we play an instrument is personal to ourselves. What I feel will be very different to what you feel. What I hear will also be very different to what somebody else hears. This is why, when you visit a flute specialist dealer, that you will see that they will stock many flute brands. If just one of these was the exact match for every flute player, then other brands wouldn't really have a need to exist, would they? It's 
almost you go into a specialist flute dealer it's almost like sort of it's a tinder date you're going along to a flute dealer and they're trying to match you with your perfect date your perfect instrument so we've got tiktok and we've got tinder oh crikey i don't know where i'm going with this podcast but that's what happened you're flying solo anyway moving on so how do you choose your own best flute well as i've said you make sure you go to a specialist music dealer who has expertise in flutes start with knowing your budget and make sure that when you visit a music store that you try as many flute brands that fit within your specific budget If you can take somebody with you to be an additional set of ears, then that would be perfect. Try each instrument without, if possible, first looking at the brand name engraved on the barrel. Now, this is a bit odd, I know, because as flute players, when somebody puts their flute down, how many of us actually look at the brand name on the barrel? It's actually the musician that's making the music, but we like to know what they're playing. So try each instrument without looking at the brand name. The aim here is really to test the flutes without a brand bias. When you play each instrument, how does it feel? What tonal colours can you easily find? How easy is it to play loudly and softly? Is there any resistance to the sound when you play? Is it easy to articulate or tongue? If you have a teacher with you, then they will feed back what they can hear and feel with each flute. Does that match with you? And are you hearing and feeling the same things? If you have a parent or a friend listening, then what are they hearing? Once you have tried all the flutes, go back to the ones that initially felt good and then start playing each one against each other. Does one come alive more than another? Does your friend and your parent hear a difference? Can they also see a difference in when you play a certain flute? Because we give out visible cues when we are testing an instrument and anybody listening or watching you will not only be able to feedback how each flute sounds to them, but also how they see you in partnership with each instrument. Now, you might think it's a little odd for me, the managing director of an English flute company, to not be badgering away at you about our flutes, especially when they're the sponsors of this podcast. However, as a company, and as a flute company or musical instrument company, we believe that there is an instrument out there for everybody. But you have to find it yourself, rather than through the machinations and marketing of flute brands. Take guidance from your teachers as to what you would recommend. However, understand that it will be you that will be playing it, not your teacher. So, try and choose the instrument that you gel with. Blind test first without seeing the brand name and then reduce the offering down to a small choice. Test thoroughly and trust your gut with how each one makes you feel when you play it. And one last point here, be very wary when testing flutes with a brand name that you've never heard of. Try and go armed with a list of brands that you want to try. And if one is put in front of you that you've never heard of, just try a quick Google to check if it's a global flute brand, which is sold around the world. You can also do a quick social media search on Instagram and Facebook to support your choice. If you can't find any information on the brand, then I would certainly be asking more questions of the dealer. As for buying flutes online, I would personally, and this is again, it's a personal choice, 
I would only use a music dealer, specialist music dealer, because when you're buying unknown flute brands and to be perfectly honest, very cheap flute brands, you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know whether they're going to play beautifully when they arrive with you. I would support your specialist music store, either locally or nationally, as they spend a lot of money and a lot of resource into being the tinder of the flute world, matching you with your perfect partner. So in short, David, there is, as you see, no best flute. Understand actually that the more expensive the instrument it is, doesn't always mean better or best for you. That's true actually, because I know a lot of people that don't play gold because they can't afford to play gold, but they play absolutely beautifully on silver. And when you look around the world, there is still a large number of professional flute players playing on old French flutes, you know, the Louis Lotts and the Bonnevilles, rather than a gold or platinum flute that costs many, many, many times more expensive. So I've successfully managed to elongate, that is my way, uh, the question. And I do hope, David, there is something in that last few minutes of waffle that sort of can't get somewhere around an answer to that question of yours. Right, everybody, time for me to get a quick coffee break as I'm aware that you'll probably also need a break from my voice. Whilst I get one, here's the fabulous Barry Griffiths, aka Grizzly Flute on social media, playing his own arrangement for flute choir of Chemical Plant Zone from Sonic the Hedgehog 2, composed by Masato Nakamura. fabulous wasn't it he's such a brilliant flute player arranger and do you know what he's a seriously wonderful guy as well if you do anything after this podcast go and follow him at grizzly flute which is g-r-i-double-z-l-e as in grizzly bear flute the final question this week 
comes from an India Smithson from Texas who emails Dear Talking Flutes. Oh yeah. Can you mention what colours are in music? As when tone colours are mentioned to me, I don't really understand. Well, India. Claire actually wrote a book on the subject. Oh yeah, not meant to be this week, but she did. She wrote a subject called The Expressions of Colour. So I'd check out her website, clairesouthworth.com, and you'll get more information there. As with the TikTok analogy, let me go off piste for a moment and give you an analogy of, let's say, chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. If you don't like chocolate or you're lactose intolerant or vegan, and I know you can get vegan chocolate, but then this will not necessarily apply. But uh, as is usual, please bear with me for a moment whilst my brain computes an answer. Depending, and I'm sure I'm right on this, the amount of cocoa in a bar of chocolate, the difference it tastes. Yeah, well, that's, that's sort of obvious. But as a general rule of thumb, the higher the dark chocolate cocoa percentage, the more savoury and rich your bar will be. Is it a bit like having a gold flute going from 9 carat to 24 carat? Do you know, I don't know that, but as cocoa solids are naturally bitter, a higher dark chocolate cocoa percentage means chocolate becomes less of a sweet treat and more of a multi-layered tasting experience. When I taste a piece of chocolate, it will have a texture and a flavour that will become richer and denser depending on the percentage of cocoa solids. Are you still with me? It's a bit like a flute player sound that can be rich, dense and even creamy at times. As we all have different preferences of chocolate, you know, some like dark, some like milk, some like white, some like flavoured, it will be hard to break down and sort of really describe a specific chocolate taste in a relation to a specific sound. Now, I, I'm also not sure that using a gustatory experience as the reference point for an audible response would actually be easy. Instead, we use a visual reference point, and in this instance, colours. I'm sure I'm not alone in having a favourite colour, mine being red. So when I was having flute lessons many, many years ago, my teacher at the time cottoned onto this and used the various shades of red to get me to understand the depths and richness required in a passage. He also used the many shades of blue to give me a visual reference to hollowness in a passage. Most teachers, however, like to utilise a very wide colour palette in their descriptions. But for me, red and blues worked perfectly, as I could see and feel the many shades of each. However, complexity of sound, or you are required, like an artist, to have a large palette of colours for use. Also, being able to mix the colours to manipulate a tone, just like an artist would mix, say, red and blue to make purple, blue and yellow to make green, yellow and red to make orange, red and green, brown, green and yellow, oh, I'm trying to remember this, green and yellow is light green, I suppose, and so on, so on. Tonal colours are simply a reference point for you to change the sound and to be able to bring out the emotional narrative of a piece of music. It's like moving from a monotone voice, playing music with the same tone, after a while it loses its interest and becomes somewhat boring to opening up your music to changes in tonal depths and colours, demonstrating to the listening audience your large artist palette. 
albeit in audio rather than visual form. Whether you choose colours or even chocolate, it really, really doesn't matter as long as you understand that the reference point is the use of creating a different depth of each note, a different feel of each note, so that the audience, which is there to hear you, is drawn in to the music as the composer intended. As for me, I am quite happy with red and blue, but I'm really quite fancying a bit of chocolate. Perhaps I should start describing when people say, what, how do you feel about that? Well, that was sort of really rich and creamy, probably 65% cocoa. They will really think I've lost it by then anyway, wouldn't they? <laughs> anyway, 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 moving on. Ladies and gentlemen of the Talking Flute Extraverse, I suppose it's time for me to disappear. I think I'll conclude this podcast this week with reminding you that Claire and I love to read all your questions and suggestions for future Talking Flutes podcasts. You can send them directly to us at flutepodcasts at gmail.com. We read each and every one of them. Or you can message directly on Facebook and Instagram at Talking Flutes. Claire is up next week with a fascinating interview with flute player and teacher Carolyn Kelly. So until then... Wishing you a fabulous and musically fulfilling week ahead. And may your tiki-toki and tickety-tockities open up a new world of tonguing for you. Goodbye, all. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.